Robert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And every time I hear Lyndon Johnson talk about speaking for the dignity of man, it brings up something different because dignity is really important. Who we are as individuals, able to participate in a community. Many years ago... When I was a kid, a young kid, I remember hearing an adult express appreciation that one of her friends was a light shade of black and how nice it would be if no one noticed any differences, how more peaceful it would be and how well we'd all get along. That uh, stuck with me. It's been taken for granted for many generations that the United States has prided itself on being a melting pot of cultures. Now, the results of which can look pretty bland. Others more generously say America is a mosaic made up of many distinct colors and cultures. There are those who openly insist on cultural homogeneity. They demand blandness, no distinctions. Some would recognize these folks as 21st century alt-right or good old-fashioned white supremacists. The point we're going to look at today is as we move into a century where white formerly dominant uh, male-controlled culture becomes a minority, how real is our respect for and appreciation of diversity? Or are our relationships and gender roles still seen through the dominant heterosexual lens? Gay marriage, of course, became legal in all 50 states in 2015. But where are we really? How did we get here? What crucial role did network TV shows, for example, play in setting the stage? And how have our expectations of a certain safe sameness played in securing those equal rights? How necessary has it become as a result of TV shows that same-sex marriages conform to culturally dominant and subtly enforced standards? Is mainstream acceptance worth sacrificing accurate, diverse representation? How far do we still have to go for real acceptance and equality? The book is called A Perfect Union? Television and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. Our guest is its author, Corey Albertson. Thanks for being with us. Bert, thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. Oh, sure. Pleasure's mine. Interesting subject. Well, Corey Albertson is visiting lecturer of sociology at Smith College. Great place. 
His scholarship can be found in the anthologies Feminist Approaches to Media Theory and Research, as well as Youth and Sexualities, Public Feelings and Contemporary Cultural Politics. His work as a public scholar, essayist, and journalist has appeared in publications such as The Huffington Post, Interview, Out, Paste, and The Atlanta Journal Constitution. Now, that's quite a variety. Well, thanks again for being with us. What is your purpose in writing this book? Is there a vacuum that it intends to fill? So that's, that's a great opening question. And so I'll start off by just sort of telling you a little bit about how I came to write this book. Back in 2010, my best friend, Katie, who is straight, was getting married to a wonderful man named Nick. And she asked me to be her officiant for her wedding. And I wanted to do that for her as her best friend. I wanted to honor her and honor that relationship. And I, and I was honored that she asked me to do it. But at the same time, I felt very conflicted because here I was literally able to sign her paperwork and allow her and, you know, be the official person to sign her paperwork for her to get married. And yet I myself at the time could not be a groom. And so it raised a lot of conflicts within me. Uh, about whether I want to be in this institution, whether I, mm. you know, a historically exclusive institution and oppressive institution, especially when you look at yes. at its history with women. And so oh, yeah. it raised a lot of questions and personal conflicts for me. And then at the same time, though, just a year later, 2011 was the first year that the majority of the American public were in favor of same-sex marriage. And so not only was I having personally these conflicts and tensions about this institution, but there was movement happening in the broader public. People were were uh, wrestling with this, and they were moving on this in a very real way. And that year, uh, 2011, was a nine-point increase over the previous year, and it was the largest year-to-year increase that Gallup had ever recorded. And so I wanted to explore those tensions and conflicts. And, and in the process of doing that, I found out that the 2010-2011 television season contained the largest number of LGBTQ characters that had ever been recorded at that time. And this was important twofold, not only just because of the numbers, but also because of the types of representations. We started to see families, we started to see marriages, we started to see the raising of children, uh, romantic relationships, couples in in ways that we had historically not seen. And so this is a piece of the puzzle that I am trying to connect and that I feel is connected. And it's also a piece of the puzzle that is untold. Most people just focus on 2015. That's the year we got same-sex marriage. But in reality, we were moving um, because of a variety of issues four years earlier. So 2011, that's when the the polling numbers showed a real shift. And that was a a large part due to television. the universal timeless question, does art imitate life or does life imitate art? Uh, my guess is it's, it's some of both. Uh, this, this, new, this new, at the time, acceptance of same-sex marriage and its potential relationship to television is an, kind of an untold story of the LGBTQ rights and specifically marriage, marriage equality. Why hasn't it been told? Is it that people just don't want to consider the power of television? It, it, I'm curious why this story hasn't been told. That's a great question, too. And I think that you, you speak to an important point there when, you know, you say, you know, do people want to wrestle with this? Do people want to 
view television or, you know, more broadly, you know, movies as well, music, you know, any, really any type of of media that we use for entertainment. And so with media, we've always had a very complicated relationship. We know how much it permeates our lives. We get invested in it. We can't wait to participate in it. Everybody wants to be famous. But then we also, you know, turn around, we also blame it for everything. Uh, And, you know, even within academia, uh, we we often dismiss media as oft, as trivial as something that is just for entertainment, and so there's always this double-edged sword. On the one hand, we blame it for everything, and then on the other hand, we can turn right around and you know sort of trivialize it and say, oh, this is just entertainment. But you know, it's it's complicated in the sense that we have that sort of duality with media and with relate with our relationships with it, and we don't ever want to give it the weight I think that that it deserves. And so I also think too that. You know, within the public sphere, there's an element of wanting to enjoy entertainment, right? Entertainment is for pleasure. We don't want to be critical uh, of our entertainment because it's supposed to be fun. Psychologically, we often use it to numb ourselves from a hard day's work. We go home, we sit on the couch, or we sit in front of the computer screen, and we, you know, we watch, you know, whatever makes us feel good. But it's important to remember that for marginalized groups, whether it's sexual identity, whether it's race, whether it's ethnicity, age, disability, all of those representations are political, whether they want Mm. to be or not. If they are shown in a way that permeates, in a way that reaches a mass audience, they are political just by their very existence. So we can never really trivialize it as just entertainment, particularly when we're just looking at those groups. And certainly... (laughs) The majority of of my life, uh, there were you know ABC, NBC, CBS, and to a lesser extent, uh, public television. So they had to, I mean, they were, and they still are, driven by what keeps the advertisers happy. And they, I can't help but think, didn't want to go off the rails. You know, they had to walk, or I'm sure they were fearful of of getting off of the straight and narrow, if you will. Uh, and and the they, gay and narrow. Yeah, <laughs> but they they had to feel like they had to do that. I'm sure. And I wonder, you know, now there are a few more networks. Uh, there weren't in 20. Well, in 2011, what was the the status of the the networks? I can't even remember. But I'm guessing it was not were. as it was not as pervasive as it is now. Obviously, uh, in terms of streaming networks like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, they they were not as um, they were not as, uh, they didn't permeate as much of our pop culture as they do now. You know, back in 2010, 2011, it was really, it was still the networks, but it was also, you know, cable, TV, like show, you know, HBO and Showtime. Sure. But, See, you know, yeah. even the way that it is today, it's still very important to remember that those traditional networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, they still garner the majority of mm. interviews and have the highest numbers of ratings uh, than than a lot of the streaming networks. So they are still very, very important. And that's one of the reasons why I chose in my book to focus squarely on network television because they, uh-huh. I picked shows that, that purposefully got 10 million viewers or more. Ah, interesting. Yeah, and uh, t- t- TV. You know, I, I must say that, you know, I like to get into the news behind the news and look at the history of things. And yet I make sure to watch the network news because I want to see what... You know, the mainstream is, and, and that's what they represent. So it's sort of art and uh, life working together. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. 
And we're speaking with Corey Albertson about his new book, A Perfect Union, Television, and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. And there are a lot of uh, demographics in these currently United States. For a large portion of my life, television portrayed black people in very limited, predictable roles, especially in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, you know, it's sort of hard to look back at that. And, you know, we might get really feel kind of bad about the roles that they portrayed. But then came shows like All in the Family, which was white, a white family, but they had some uh, issues of integration of black people that did look at social issues head on, and it became very popular. Then shows like The Jeffersons came to the small screens of America and Cosby. Uh, and I wonder how diverse those portrayals were of real black families. Were they kind of whitish? And if so, what of it? Well, I will say that I I have not looked explicitly uh, in terms of, of the historical shows in term, uh, you know, with, with regards to race and ethnicity. But what I, what I will say about that is that really the criticism of, of the Cosby show um, is that it really played respectability politics, which is where you depict uh, a, a marginalized family. And here it was, you know, obviously marginalized due to race, but you depict them as close to sort of the ideal white family right. as you possibly can. The earlier shows that you mentioned, the Jeffersons, and also um, the characters that were on All in the Family were much better about uh, depicting what was happening for um, African Americans, you know, during that time. They still sort of had to be sensitive to the broader public in terms of what they were watching. They couldn't go too in-depth, but they did actually depict, for example, you know, they did depict, you know, black folks who were struggling financially. They did depict, you know, black folks who, you know, had issues with race, uh, and 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 what all that entailed, and so that did exist. But we've sort of gotten away from that. Uh, we still are not even today, I think, depicting a broad range of of um, of the representations of what people of color are actually experiencing in this country. And so this connects to sort of the themes in my book is what we tra what we typically do with marginalized groups is we mm -hmm. we sort of depict them as uh as close to mm -hmm. the ideal and and by ideal i mean white mm -hmm. uh middle class uh living in the suburbs have 2.5 children Just like all us. of those sort of depictions mm -hmm. of success that we have Mm. created or the hierarchies of success we've created, we typically subject marginalized groups to that in our representations before we actually get to depicting what they're actually experiencing. Yeah, interesting. They're they're just like us. You know, if, if they weren't just like us, whoa, then maybe uh, there'd be fear involved. And that will come up, no doubt, in, the, in this discussion, the whole idea of fear of the other. Uh, but on the shows that you analyzed, you sense is that race predicts gender expression, at least for women. Tell us more about that. Can you explain that? So within, within the shows that I looked at, so I looked at shows like Modern Family, I looked at uh, Glee, I looked at Desperate Housewives, uh, The Good Wife, uh, and so in, in Grey's Anatomy as well. Uh, all of these shows, when you had a couple where it was two women, you had 
typically, the, the one woman was, was a woman of color, and then one woman was white. And the women of color were very much uh, espousing masculine gender norms. So they were yeah. very competitive in their job. They were more aggressive. They were more practical. They were hypersexual uh, and even sexually aggressive. And so that's wow. what the women of color were experiencing. But then on the other hand, the white women were very much trapped in more feminine gender roles, meaning that they were more passive. They were more concerned with the feelings in the relationship. They uh, were more, just more concerned with the relationship in general and the feelings of, of, of their other partner. And so what happened was that, that I, I found that this was really a holdover of how we have viewed women of color, both globally and within this country. There's a long history going back to slavery of viewing um, black women in particular as being able to endure hardship, so being physically strong, being emotionally strong, um, also being hypersexual, also being aggressive, uh, all of these sort of stereotypes that we created about black women to justify slavery. And we have also mm. used those similar stereotypes to talk about women from South Asia, Latino women. On the flip side of that, we have always, we have always kept ideal femininity within the realm of whiteness. Mm. And what I mean by that is that our ideas of ultimate femininity have always been the fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, the Aryan white woman. And it never failed that within these depictions, the character on TV that was within the feminine gender roles was the Aryan white woman, and the more masculinized uh, uh, partner was a woman of color, which is very problematic. I'd say so. And, you know, as you describe it, and as I think about relationships, and I, I happen to be straight, and, you know, within our relationship, you know, it's not the man is more, you know, less feeling and the woman is more feeling. You know, it's a box that people are put in and it doesn't fit no matter straight, gay, you know, whatever race or culture. It really it's it's very constricting. And I'm reminded there was a quote from a uh, an abolitionist, uh, Wendell Phillips, after the uh, the Civil War, when he said that. The South would, something, I don't have it exactly right, that the South would never rise again, would never take up arms, would never want to leave America, but they would rule from within. And I think about the the picture of the, the Southern Belle, the fragile, you know, pale uh, Aryan woman as being the feminine ideal. That's pretty uh, constricting and, and really oppressive of of women and everybody, really. Uh Absolutely. And, you know, this is another version. What I found in the book is that this is another version of when you have a straight person that goes up to a same-sex couple and they ask them, okay, which one's the boy and which one's the girl? Oh, jeez. <laughs> right? And so this is, this is while it's not as explicit as that, as that, this is what these depictions are doing. They are looking at these same-sex couples from a very heterosexual perspective. And, of course, the answer yeah. to that question is, oh, we're both women, or oh, we're both men. That's the accurate answer. Neither one of us is the boy, neither one of us is the girl, right? And so, and, and straight folks who ask those questions, whether it's asking them on the street or whether it's doing a version of it like this and asking it basically on a television program, uh, is incredibly disrespectful, but then also, as you point out, very oppressive. 
very oppressive. It's it's so unrealistic, and ah, uh, it's just a uh, to, to put it into that little box. It's just it's just not right, and nobody is really like that because you know everybody's a bit of both. I, I know that uh, many many years ago, Gore Vidal talked about how you know being straight or gay. It's really not black and white you know there, there's like a little bit of that in all of us it's just a question of how much and one of the great things about being human in my opinion is that we can be a whole bunch of different things at once and not be put in a box like that this is interesting stuff so you say that straight couples are more free to ignore marriage and gay and lesbian couples are not how do we see this playing out on television shows, including specifically Glee and Grey's Anatomy? Uh, so this, this leads to sort of one of the funnier depictions in the book. And so what I found is that, you know, the, the same-sex couples very much mimic traditional notions of the ideal 1950s family where, as yeah. I said before, one partner is more feminine, one partner is more masculine. Uh, and so then you wrap all of that within monogamy, suburbia, you know, children, marriage, and it really becomes a nostalgia trap. And so what I argue here is that uh, the, the, the gay folks uh, or the same-sex couples are really the carriers of the 1950, of that traditional 1950s family, which, by the way, never really existed no, for, for sure. everybody. That was a total myth that we, that we sort of hold ourselves up to. But they are now the carry, carriers. And so straight folks are looking at these depictions and saying, oh, what a wonderful you know, beautiful family. And that's the 1950s family that basically they're looking at. And there's, there's a great example uh, within Grey's Anatomy where the two women, Callie yes. and Arizona, get married. And honestly, Bert, it is the best straight wedding that I have ever seen. <laughs> the, the women are in the big frou-frou white dresses. Men give them away. They walk down the aisle. They have very traditional values. And the whole thing is showered in pink. It looks like it's been hosed down with Pepto-Bismol. And so... <laughs> I missed that episode. What, what they do is that they then juxtapose this scene uh-huh. with the two main characters, Meredith and Derek, a straight couple, right. and they have gone to very dull, drab, boring, gray courthouse, and they don't even have rings, right? And so oh they, they, enter, they, they edit back and forth between these two depictions, and so what it shows is that the straight folks are saying, oh, you know, you, you know we really don't care about this whole you know, big ceremony, uh, we don't, and we also don't need it for our own legitimacy, but the gay couple same-sex couple has to put on the show in order for it to be Uh. accepted, in order for it to be viewed as real. And so, you know, they are doing the wedding better than the straight folks. The show's the thing, somebody said. Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't even, you know, noticed that, I suppose, but uh, wow. Although I haven't seen Grey's Anatomy in quite some time, I'll confess. (laughs) You (laughs) You introduced the term societal surrogate to describe a television character that stands in for society or the viewing audience. Can you give us an example, explain societal surrogate? Absolutely. So this term, uh, societal surrogate, was really inspired by a wonderful, famous film scholar named Laura Mulvey, who back in the 1970s went back and looked at old Alfred Alfred Hitchcock movies and specifically was looking at the depictions of women in those movies, and Uh she determined that what is happening within those films and more broadly in media is 
that women's portrayals are created through what she called a heterosexual male gaze. Basically, that men mm. create uh, depictions of women in order for their in, in for their own pleasure. Oh yeah. And she said that this can happen both in terms of the director who's shooting it, in terms of the audience who's watching it, but then also in terms of the characters physically within the representation and how they are looking at women. And so I take that piece, talking about the characters and how they look at other characters, and I broaden that out and I say, okay, there are characters that function basically as the the law enforcement of society in these shows in terms of our values, in terms of our belief systems, and that can take the traditional form that Mulvey talked about in terms of the male gaze. It can be objectifying women. So, for example, there's there's a character on Grey's Anatomy who is uh, a male heterosexual character, and he is looking at the the lesbian, and he's literally staring at her chest, and he is policing her, uh, yeah. you know, and 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 utilizing the male gaze, uh, you know, for his pleasure. So he is off, off operating as a societal surrogate. But then uh-huh. it can be broadened out to anything. It can police gender roles. It can police the type of relationship that you're supposed to be in. There's another example within Glee where the gay male character Kurt is sitting at a piano and his best friend Mercedes, an African-American straight woman, comes up to him and and looks at his sweater. And his sweater has this bold face of a woman on, on the front of it. And she looks at him and she says, is that a woman's sweater? And so she's policing him, basically saying, why are you wearing this woman's sweater? And so it can be anything from what you're wearing to, uh, you know, the way that you look to the type of a relationship that you're in or your beliefs. And so it's really any societal values that a character is using to police another character. Wow. Interesting. And you know, the, the, there's a, such a thing as a police state where, you know, the police just run everything. And the opposite of that is freedom, you know? Right. <laughs> and it sounds like that's what we're talking about here. And the idea of policing other people, you know, like putting people like, this is the appropriate framework and we're going to enforce that on. And I people haven't thought about that. You're right. This is an important uh, point that I don't think people have really thought about that, uh, Various different behaviors, specifically on the TV shows, serve as that uh, law enforcement. Like, don't step out of the law. You can't have too much freedom, really. Right. And we have to remember, too, that representation is important on the one hand because you're physically seeing a person who looks like you or acts like you or identifies with you. And there's something very powerful in that. But there's also the, the other side of the coin here. As soon as you make yourself visible, you are then subject to being policed more, right? Because now you're out from the shadows. And so we have to remember that visibility is a trap in a lot of respects. That as soon as you come out, as soon as you are in public, as soon as you are visible, that opens you up to being policed. Now you actually can have a target on your back. And so this was one of sort of the interesting dualities that I find about the broader um, LGBTQ movement and visibility is that while back in the 1960s and 70s when the LGBTQ movement started, you know, then it was known as the gay rights movement or the mm-hmm. gay liberation movement, mm-hmm. back then it was very much about wanting to come out from the shadows, yes. right, and, yes, and, sure. and to be visible, and we were still struggling with being, you know, seen, mm. but there was also an interesting freedom that happened within the shadows, meaning, and what I mean by ah, that, I'm not saying that, 
of, you know, folks obviously could not be what they wanted to be. They couldn't be out. They couldn't, you know, live, you know, their best lives. But on the other hand, they could actually form the kind of relationships that maybe they wanted to form. They weren't subject to social norms. They weren't subject as much to social hierarchies in the fact that, you know, there's 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 freedom to be had in in the shadows. I always I love uh, Gloria Steinem's quote where she talks about being um, older, an older woman, and she says that you know when you become an older woman, you become invisible. But she says, boy, the things you can do when you're invisible. Yeah. And and so you know there's there's an element of that. And so again, I'm certainly not saying that right. you know we shouldn't have fought for our rights. We shouldn't have fought to be seen. We shouldn't have fought to be heard. But there is an element of freedom that also happens when you're not seen. And then as soon as you become seen, you are you can have a target on your back. Wow, so interesting. Wow, it's it's stuff that we haven't uh, thought about for a while. Why, why do you think it is that that most of the male characters in the TV shows you studied? are monogamously partnered, and, and while the women are more often dating uh, than, than dating more than one person, often uh, someone male as well as someone female. So they're dating, it, it, there's, more, there's a difference there. Why does, what, while that does not accurately reflect patterns among gay men and lesbians, what, what does it do, that sort of uh, uh, rigid uh, uh, ex- expectation of how people date and partner? This is sort of the uh, what now I guess you consider classic trope of women being for the pleasure of men in that we've always allowed women to be more sexually fluid and we have often allowed that to be sexually fluid because it functions as a form of pleasure for the heterosexual man. You know, the... the Control, the old, too. Uh, well, yeah, the old uh, sort of fantasy of, you know, of heterosexual men of having two women be together. Right, and so because it has historically been a function of that, um, we have we've allowed women to sort of quote unquote experiment. We've allowed women to sort of be in a phase. We've allowed women to you know give her boyfriend a present, you know, for his birthday, and 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 by that I mean you know his present is you know being with another woman, and so we've sort of allowed all these deviations for women where they can do all of this and not be labeled as a lesbian, right, or not be put in this sort of you know, rigid box. For gay men, on the other hand, because it's wrapped up, you know, being gay has always been sort of wrongly wrapped up within masculinity in terms of stereotypes. You know, being gay has always been attached to to being feminine and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And what happens here is that we have not allowed the same fluidity. We've not allowed for the same experimentation for men. And so if a man has one same-sex experience then boom, he is labeled as oh, gay, yeah. and there's no way that he can, you know, fight against that. And so I think that that a version of that actually plays out on these shows that I look at, in that the women are by and large far more sexually fluid. They are less likely to identify as you know 100% lesbian, whereas the gay men, um, who by the way are all white. They are always labeled, and literally in Glee, one of them labels themselves as, quote, 100% gay. And so there is just not any room Mm. for experimentation. And as you pointed out, that is also not the accurate accurate Mm. depiction of the LGBTQ community because there's a whole host of of folks along the sexuality spectrum in terms of percentage, if you want to get quantitative about it. Well, I, there there certainly is a, a spectrum, and 
so many people, especially on the right, don't understand that. They're afraid of it. They don't. I think, you know, fear and being afraid are sort of two sides of the same coin. If, we want you, people figured out. <laughs> true. You know, I mean, this is what it true. comes to. We, people in power, especially, they want people figured out. And if you go up to someone, huh. you say, oh, you know, I don't really have a label. They're going to, they don't know what to do with you. Yes. And... That is one of the ways that I actually saw societal surrogacy play out with characters is they would police the women characters, try to force them to label themselves, even when they didn't want to, oh because it just makes us uncomfortable. We are so used to putting people in a box. We are so used to labels. We are so used to doing that, and that's more so for our own fear and for our own level of comfort and less about the actual person who is identifying or not. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a way of control. And and it's fear kind of ruling that. And, you know, people are more than their sexuality. Yes, we're all on a spectrum, you know, different ways. But it seems, on TV, it seems the only way of expressing gay or lesbian identity is through romantic and sexual relationships. People work. People have interests. They go sailing. They play, whatever, you know. What is TV missing on this by, you know, just... The only way of expressing gay or lesbian identity seems to be in that box of relationships. I'll tell you what they're missing. They're actually missing hiring me to go write some of these shows and make some of the Hollywood money. That's the first thing that they're missing, Bert. <laughs> well, it would probably make the money. You're right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but in all seriousness, what I think they're missing is sort of, as you as you alluded to, is the broader spectrum of LGBTQ life. And and by that, I mean folks who, for example, don't ever want to be in a relationship, folks who are happy being single, folks who are, and particularly among gay men, folks who are very happy having sexual relationships with people versus being in a traditional, you know, monogamous, right. you know, one relationship. Uh, we also don't see class depictions that lesbians are experiencing. We know that uh, you know, by the very fact that it's two women together, that, you know, women make less in this country than men. And so when you put two men together, they're making more money, and you put two women together, they're making less money. So we don't see those class depictions. We also don't see our radical activism. And and this gets to sort of the broader, bigger point that I have an issue with, is that we never see any of these characters on TV as part of a larger activist community. And that is something that has historically been so important to the LGBTQ movement. Um, And we just don't see that. And so my question for Hollywood is, where is the community? Say more about that. What do you mean, the community? So typically, and you alluded to this, we, we often will show folks within their, we'll show them individually. Yes. So we'll show them individually, they may have one gay friend. Right, so mm. I'm thinking here, like Will and Grace is a good example of that. Right, there's there's two gay men on the show, or on Grey's Anatomy we have two women. Right, we never see them interact or be friends with any groups of other women. We never see them go out and protest. We never see them be full members of their community. Uh-huh. Actually, yeah. you know, advocating for their community on Glee. You know, Glee took place in a more rural town, but even then we see, you know, two gay men that are together, right? Um, on, on Modern Family, they, they, there's, again, two gay men, and, and they get together with 
two or three friends. They go out for drinks every once in a while, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't see a broader community network. We don't see them, you know, going out to gay spaces. We don't see them, you know, being activists. We don't see them basically creating a community to fight or to protest a lot of what is happening in the world. And that is something that has been very much rooted within the LGBTQ community and very much a part of it and very much um, central to our visibility. And yet it's never depicted. There's been news lately how isolated people feel. People feel alone and isolated all across America. And it's a big problem. There was some country in Europe, I forget which, where there actually there's a government agency to look into that, how it can address that. And by focusing so much, you know, the TV shows, there's no sense of community. Everybody is isolated. We're put in a box. We don't have that freedom to be more than, you know, our relatively simple identities. And it seems that that, you know, identity, uh, the, the stereotypes are slapped onto gay and lesbian people more than straight people, unfortunately. And it, it restricts our freedom. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, we really need that community now more than ever, and we need those representations of community now more than ever. There was, you know, a recent Harris poll that came out that showed the levels of discomfort among the public towards LGBTQ folks has actually risen in the last two years since the election. And and so we are in an age where we are more divided, where we are experiencing a us versus them mentality and we are seeing that literally play out in the numbers and this is striking the fact that you know these numbers were going up that people were becoming more and more comfortable with lgbtq folks every single year and then now uh you know in the last two years that level of discomfort is what is going up and so we need this community more than ever. We need to be, you know, have solidarity more than ever. At the same time, we do need to recognize our beautiful differences within our own community, but then also, you know, work together. What a concept! Working together, being together in a community. I know. What a concept! Stronger together. <laughs> who, who, who thought about that? You know. Well, yeah, <laughs> there were some other issues there as well. We won't go into that. But people are hungry for community. This is. People need to feel like they're part of something, like a tribe or something like that, as we've talked about on this show before. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Corey Albertson. His new book is A Perfect Union, Television, and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. When I was growing up, and yes, you're guessing my age, it used to be that father knows best. Absolutely. Now we see the gay and lesbian characters in the shows you studied always trying to fix up straight couples. What what function does that serve? Is that policing again? I mean, that, I, I find that an interesting thing. It's not just father knows best. The gay and lesbian characters, they can offer some good advice. Yes, and so it is a form of policing. So now this is the ultimate form of acceptance. This is how we know we've truly sort of made it in terms of our levels of acceptance in that we are now so accepting that we can turn around and we have the power to then fix up straight couples and the straight folks listen to us, right? And so this is sort of the full circle moment where the the same-sex couples are literally trying to create very traditional heterosexual relationships for other people, and particularly straight people. And so there's there's a great example of this from Modern Family where 
Camp Cameron mm-hmm. uh, uh, is there. Cameron and Mitchell are at the mall, and they they literally pick up. Cameron literally picks up this elderly straight woman and places her. It takes her down an escalator and places her next to an elderly straight man, and so he is literally forcing them together. And he he you know spouts all of this very uh, romantic language about, oh, oh, love is all you need, and no. are we without love? And so he's espousing all of these sort of no. norms that heterosexuals have created for themselves, and he is then placing them again on a, on a heterosexual couple. And so we see these, you know, versions of, of this story throughout, you know, what I chronicle in the book, and that, again, is, is the ultimate sign of our acceptance, but it's a very problematic sign of our acceptance. We have so bought into yes. this idea of the 1950s traditional mm-hmm. heterosexual family that, you know, now we are the ones espousing it, literally, to other straight people. So now we're policing other straight people. And in one sense, you know, it, it's it's good, I mean, definitely good to get away from the, you know, the father knows best, uh, uh, white male dominant and, and all those uh, uh, archetypes and, and stereotypes in there, and but the real freedom from that is still out there. We're not there yet. We are not there yet. It's it's so interesting that uh, we're moving that way. It seems, but it it it's it takes a while, and change comes slowly. Cultural change certainly, I think, comes before political change, and we're still working on a cultural change. Surprise, surprise, and certainly. Uh, with regard to politics, certainly since the Trump election, uh, fear and hate has gotten, you know, you can do it now. People, I think, had to perhaps be in the closet, if you will, about their fear and hate before, but now they can openly hate people who are different from them. It's very, very frightening, but it's also, on the other hand, putting together people on the other side who realize, hey, this is not right. So perhaps it's bringing people together. I mean, like, I remember during the war in Vietnam, Nixon was the best anti-war organizer. Perhaps Trump is the best, uh, you know, social justice organizer. But we'll leave that behind. TV is a very competitive business. It's all about attracting advertisers. And the TV shows you examine seem to work pretty hard at making their gay and lesbian characters seem, in in most ways, just like heterosexuals. Given that these network shows have to appeal to advertisers and and viewers, obviously, across this very divided country of ours, do they really have other marketable options aside from hiring you to write the shows? <laughs> well, that, you know, that's the best option right there uh, of for them to do. So hopefully they'll hear this today and I'll get some phone calls. Uh, but, you know, you, you sort of speak to an important point and also the rock and the hard place, right, which is where... Uh, on the one hand, especially when you're looking at traditional network TV shows who are still attracting large audiences and who are still working actively to attract these large audiences, is that they do have to appeal to a broad range of the public. And so I do think that they, there's a certain a level of, of you know, constriction there. And so we know that, for example, ABC for a long time actually had censors in place to where they could not show two gay men kissing, and, and, and they couldn't especially show it on uh, sort of the half-hour sitcoms like Modern Family. And so you saw Modern Family try to work within that and, and, and 
devised these very creative ways to have Cameron and Mitchell kiss. Uh, ultimately, though, what that ends up doing is so there was there was one example where uh, Mitchell has shaving cream on and Cameron goes to kiss him and you literally can't see their lips touching because uh. of the shaving cream, right? Mm. And so that's the way that they got around it. But um, so they were creative and I give them kudos for for doing what they could. On the other hand, though, we have to also remember that by never showing gay men's sexuality, we are position, positioning a very inaccurate depiction mm. of of what they are ex- of what they are actually experiencing, and so it really impacts what other people think of us. And so we are putting forth, you know, one version of how gay men act, and one version of the type of relationships that that gay yeah. men are in. And we know that these depictions are important in moving the public. There, you know, there was a fascinating um, poll that came out a couple of years ago that actually asked. Uh, straight folks, what percentage of the population do you think is gay? And twenty, th- uh, the majority of the American public said that it was around 25%. Really? Yes. And in reality, we yeah. are only about 3 to 6%. So people think that we are so much more within the public because of what they have seen on television, because we are literally everywhere on TV. And all, you know, most shows now have to come standard. It's like a car. They have, like, you know, they come standard with power steering or, you know, you know, electric windows. Most shows now have to come standard with a gay character because it's just expected that that diversity exists. But what that has actually done is it has distorted what straight folks think is our way of living. It's distorted literally our numbers within the public around them, which I think speaks to a lot of what happened in the election. You know, people thought that. You know, they were threatened by yeah. sort of what they thought was this huge change and these, you know, you sure. know, people that were different from them. And when in reality, we're a very small portion of the population. And pretty much the same. I mean, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, really, it, it, people don't realize I, I think people don't realize how many, you know, how many of their friends may be gay. I don't know. It just they talk about and it still amazes me how many people talk about the gay agenda. Right. Just insane. Yes, you know, I mean, we, we do. We all sit behind our computer screens and we're all working together on, on this gay agenda, on, <laughs> on an Excel spreadsheet. You know, that's what we're doing. We're mapping out our gay agenda. Oh. <laughs> it's all very coordinated, Bert. Oh. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's just, people. What, what people fear, it's just, it does so much harm, the fear that people have. Because, of course, fear and hate, again, are two sides of the same coin. There was a, is there evidence that exposure to media reduces prejudice toward marginalized group? Apparently, there was this University of uh, Minnesota professor, uh, Edward Schapa, had a study exposing university students to episodes of Will and Grace. What can you tell us about what that found? So this is another example of the power of TV. So we talked about, you know, previously, right, just the sheer numbers that people think that we exist and that, you know, is tied to our levels of representation and what they're seeing, you know, in media. This is another example. And so uh, Edward Schiappa did this this famous study where he exposed 250 college students to episodes of Will and Grace. And so this was back in the mid-2000s. And what he found was that it lowered the levels of sexual prejudice uh, among these folks who had self-identified as straight. And even more interesting is that it lowered the levels of sexual prejudice the most among 
people who had the least amount of contact with gay men or lesbians. And so we know that television, based on this study, we know that television isn't just important for representation, isn't just important for numbers and seeing. It literally does change attitudes. So it not only reflects, it actually does change attitudes. Fascinating. Absolutely. So, so the people who decide what TV shows they're going to be, the you know the 21st century uh, madmen, are... Uh, really making changes in the culture. Very interesting. And so I suppose that plays into the uh, right wing, you know, oh, Hollywood liberals. Well, maybe it's true. <laughs> but they wouldn't be they wouldn't be doing it unless they really, you know, that it was going to make the advertisers happy. So they're both right. Re- and, you know, I do think that it is important to remember, and this is what I tell my students, that particularly the folks who are consuming uh media, and and by that I mean, you know, these television shows that are being produced and movies, they are wanting, and they are more, they are wanting a more diverse representation, and they are more accepting. You know, millennials in particular, uh, like the students that I teach, they are literally the most accepting generation, statistically, the most accepting generation that we've ever had. And and so those, and they are courted, they are courted by Uh Hollywood, they are courted by social media, and millennials demand uh, for representation. They demand for these depictions. And so I think going forward in the future, we're just going to see more. And And I'm grateful for them. I always tell my students that, you know, it's going to be up to you yes. uh, to really change this world and to make it into the place that you want it to be and, and uh, to demand this of your institutions, one of those institutions being media. And you get to be at Smith College, which is, I understand, a, a wonderful place. I haven't been there in a long time, but it's a nice community, all those colleges out there. And uh, it's it's a good place to work, I'm sure. They probably- it is. I'm very grateful. And I'm, you know, very lucky, again, to be around and to see. They keep me, they keep me young and they keep me hip uh, in terms of, uh, of of what's hot and what's new and also what they demand and what they want. And so, like I yeah. said before, you know, it, this generation and, and, and I think, you know, their parents too, um, you know they are very much uh, connected to sort of what they're seeing in the in the in the broader media, and they are demanding of it. They will not settle for anything less. And if if it's not there, then they are going to be the ones that are going to go out and create it. And so I can't wait to see what they end up doing. Oh, it's so hopeful. I have I have two uh, kids. Uh, one is seventeen, the other is twenty one, and uh, it's just. It's so heartening, I have to say, you know, the idea of racism and and sexism and things. It's just like, what? Who needs it? It's just so far, they've moved so far beyond that. Now, one place where, I mean, there's still a lot of movement that needs to be done, specifically with regard to transgender rights. It seems like they may be where gay rights were about 40 years ago. And I know that on Orange is the New Black, and apparently other shows, trans characters are portrayed. What do these representations offer to the movement for trans rights, and in what ways do they fall short? So I'm glad you asked that, uh, and I do want to say that within the, the work that I did for this book, A Perfect Union, there were no trans depictions at that time. So there were no uh, representations that I could look at and that I could study for the purposes of the book. And even last year, we had the first uh, lead character that was a trans character appear on a network television show, and that was a, a legal mm. drama that Laverne Cox appeared on, and unfortunately it was canceled, but that's the only representation that we have had 
on a traditional network. Now, as you mentioned, we do have representations on other on streaming services, uh, you know, like Netflix, like Hulu, like Amazon, other depictions of trans characters, and so. But still, they're very few. And what I'm really looking for in terms of trans characters is to see if they are going to be subject to a similar trajectory that we saw with gay men, with lesbians, with bisexuals that I chronicle in my book. I really feel that trans visibility within television, within movies, is sort of the next step. Yeah. As I said before, yeah. you know, gay folks were old hat at this point. Right. So television and movies, they, they need something to show their diversity. They need something that's going to catch you, that's, you know, unfortunately going to, you know, shock you. And I, I fear yeah. that what they're going to be doing is they're going to be using trans folks to sort of fill that gap and to get the attention. Uh. And within the depictions that you mentioned, um, what I worry about is, is that there's going to, be a similar trajectory in that we create a hierarchy of a right way to be trans in a similar way hmm. we created a hierarchy and that there's a right way to be gay or to be lesbian. And so I do want to make a point that, you know, for example, like with Laverne Cox um, and other depictions, what we typically see in trans folks who are advocates, trans folks who are in the media and very well known is that they often operate in a hyper-feminine way or a hyper-masculine way. So they're very much within uh, traditional feminine roles or traditional masculine roles. Now, it is important to make the point that this has historically been a tool used by trans folks just in order to survive, right? Because mm -hmm. trans folks who are somewhere in that spectrum who are not tradition, who do not appear as passable in terms of, right. you know, being hyper-feminine or hyper-masculine, they're often targeted and they're targeted for violence. We've seen, again, since Trump got elected, the, the, you know, the rise in trans violence, uh, you know, in this country, yeah. and particularly, you know, trans folks of color uh, have, have been subjects to that. And so it's an important tool to survive. The issue is that when we only depict one way of being trans is that, again, we sort of diminish all of the beautiful differences that exist within the trans community. And so a lack of varied representation can actually run the risk of creating a broader narrative of a right way mm -hmm. to be trans. And that's what I hope doesn't happen, but I fear that it will, because we have done this with gay men, with lesbians, with bisexual folks. We've also done with done this with um, people of color, particularly African Americans, in terms of our representations on TV already. So that's typically the, traje the trajectory that we follow. Boy, yeah, the a right way to be this or that, a right way to be gay, a right way to be lesbian, a right way to be black. Oh, my goodness. That policing thing comes up again. Um, and in, in 2012, three years before uh, same-sex marriage was so ordered by the Supreme Court, uh, which was a fabulous day, I will say, you published a piece in the Huffington Post in which you asked why the LGBTQ community was fighting to be like heterosexuals, to be normal, and what that attainment of normalcy has cost. What were your concerns at the time? And have your fears been realized? Talk about that for a little while. I'm glad you asked that, because that really speaks to the history of the LGBTQ uh, movement. Again, after, you know, when Stonewall happened in 1969, which basically started off what was then called the gay rights movement, and right. what we currently have now, the iteration of it that we have now, 
they were not fighting to be, quote, just like us. They were not fighting right. for normalcy. They were fighting to be heard, and they were fighting to be seen, but they were fighting to actually against traditional gender norms. They were fighting yes, against absolutely. traditional structures of relationships. They were fighting to be radical. And uh, a wonderful scholar named Alan Sears calls this body politics. And we have lost that edge. What happened was that we moved and, and put it, we put all of our sort of eggs in this one big gay basket, which yeah. is gay marriage, right? Yeah, interesting. And, and, and when we just decided that we were going to fight for that, right? And huh. the way that we fought for it is by saying, hey, look, we're just like you. Hey, look, we love just like you. Hey, look, we want families just like you. And that is true for a lot of folks within the community. Yeah. But it is also not true for a lot of folks within the community. And they do want to disrupt a lot of these institutions and a lot of these ways of being, a lot of these right ways of being that have historically not worked out so well for <laughs> heterosexuals, right? Uh, and, and, you know, just by looking at the numbers, just by looking at the divorce rates, just by looking, oh, yeah. you know, at, at historically what it's been like for women in terms of levels of happiness, levels of stress, all of these sorts of things that women experience, with straight women experience within marriage. And so what we've done is we have, we have sort of backed ourselves into a corner now to where we have, again, created this sort of right way to be. Yeah. And I do fear and, and have seen it realized that we have moved away from, uh, from originally what the gay rights movement was about. And we have moved away from trying to disrupt things that have historically not worked to participating in them so that we get, you know, the rights that are attached to them. And I don't obviously want to diminish that because those rights are very important. Uh, the rights in terms of mostly marriage, you know, being attached to, you know, visitation rights in terms of children, in terms of, sure. uh, you know, being, uh, you know, taking care of partners, in terms of money, in terms of, you know, all of these sorts of ways that we have made marriage integrated into our lives. Um, but at the same time, we have certainly lost those body politics. We have lost that radicalism. We have lost that edge to to fight for actually allowing people to be different and allowing people to construct relationships that are meaningful uh, for them and not be policed for it. Freedom. It's it's hard to uh, define, hard to keep. Wow. Very interesting. Fascinating stuff. Really fascinating. The book is called A Perfect Union with a question mark. Television and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. Our guest has been its author, Corey Albertson. Thank you so much. Fascinating discussion today. Thank you so much, Bert. And you can find me at Corey-Albertson.com and on Instagram and Twitter at WCoreyAlbertson. C-O-R-Y-A-L-B-E-R-T-S-O-N, correct? You got it. Thank you so much. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one, and a blue one and a yellow one, and they're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all went to the university. Tips.